This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your regular podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday. And this week, we're investigating some of the medieval beliefs and practices that existed to keep illness and death at bay in the Middle Ages. At a time when good health was far from guaranteed, many people turned to England's monasteries as the healthcare providers of the day, while others put their faith in magic, miracles and the supernatural. Joining us to reveal more are senior properties historian Dr Michael Carter and Professor Catherine Ryder from the University of Exeter's Department of History. I'd like to discuss first of all the idea of the nearness of death in medieval culture, which starts with the departure of the Romans from Britannia in the early 400s. So broadly speaking, why was death never far away? Catherine, what's your view, first of all? Um, Well, people generally in the Middle Ages die at much younger ages than they would now. Things like infectious diseases are major killers without antibiotics. Medicine and surgery can't do a great deal to help in a lot of cases. And added to that, you've got quite poor living conditions. Standards of hygiene are often very poor, so diseases spread. A lot of people live at sort of near subsistence level. So again, there's malnutrition, people are more susceptible to illness. Things like childbirth are much riskier. So there are lots of causes that will cause people to die at much younger ages. Do we know what the life expectancy was for the rich and poor in medieval society? Well, it's hard to be too sure because we haven't got parish registers which tell us about births and deaths. We can estimate from some of the records, we can estimate from skeletons. What we know are mortality rates among babies and children are very, very high. So one recent estimate is that maybe a fifth of the population dies before the age of 10. But if you survive into adulthood, then the average age to live is around about 45, 50. Some people do live to be properly old, but it's much less common than now. So all in all, when you look at the broad picture of what life was like in medieval England over hundreds of years, it wasn't easy and death was very close, wasn't it, Michael? Uh, I think that's a good point. You know, there's the old adage, isn't there? Life in um, the Middle Ages was nasty, brutish and short. And there is something to that. Going back to that question of average life expectancy, and I think Catherine was right to say how difficult it is and the importance of childhood mortality. And the kind of statistics she quoted, you know, 20% childhood mortality, now that held true and into modern times, very, very high rates of childhood mortality. And that having an overall impact on what's called life expectancy at birth. And in history documentaries, you will often find this life expectancy at birth quoted to give really quite terrifying statistics of average life expectancy being in the 30s or something. That's partly because so many people don't make it through their first five years of life. But you do get people living a ripe old age. I mean, I'm aware of numerous abbots and monks living well into their 80s. But even people who live quite comfortable lives, but in the wider spectrum of things, 
someone who springs to mind is Aylred of Revo, who dies in his 50s. Now, he would have had an opportunity to have had a much higher standard of living than some of his 12th century contemporaries. But the austerities of the monastic life, um, the hardships he puts his body through, do have a significant impact on his life expectancy. And then, of course, there is this thing of being aware of death. You know, this is something which I think is a relatively modern phenomenon that we are not aware of death. We are not confronted with it unless it's some kind of a catastrophe, an elderly member of a family dying. It's not part of our daily consideration. That is a really, really modern luxury. It's something which even 100 years ago, our attitude to death and our familiarity with death would have been radically different. And it also, I think, affects how you think about the hereafter and issues of the spirit and a religious structure, a religious belief structure that encourages you to think about your end, to prepare for your end is hugely important when thinking about the Middle Ages. And this isn't necessarily morbid either or something negative. It's something which can give people a real sense of control and agency in their life and also can be a real encouragement to lead a better life, not just for themselves, but also for the benefit of others as well. Yes, I think that's a really good point, actually. Uh, You'd agree with that, Catherine? Yes, I would. And just to pick up on one of the things Michael said about in the modern age, we have the luxury of not being aware of death for a long time. This is a period, the Middle Ages is a period when most people would have died at home. And that might have been, as we've talked about, at a younger age than we'd expect now. But death is not something that happens away in hospitals. It's something that happens in your home, in your village. People would have seen, been to deathbeds, they would have seen dead bodies much more often. So again, Mm. that gives a heightened awareness of death. Yes, life and death were a lot more closely related back in the medieval era. Michael's mentioned St. Aylred of Revo Abbey, one of our English heritage properties. So the next question almost links in with that. But Michael, where was the best place to be if you were ill in medieval society? It's where you're going to get some care, isn't it? And you have people around you who can provide care. Now, it's one of these things that, you know, there's a Monty Python-esque and a Black Adder impression of healthcare in the Middle Ages. And it's always quite negative and quite pejorative. But the basics of healthcare in the Middle Ages are, to some extent, the basics of healthcare today. And it's about warmth, it's about rest, and it's about nutrition. Now, some people could be provided with that at home. Other people were desperately poor, and how to be provided with that was a real challenge. But one of the, and it's very true, one of the best providers, or most important providers of of healthcare to a community was a monastery. One of the best known hospitals in the United Kingdom is St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, and that is a medieval foundation. It's a monastic hospital set up for the healthcare poor Londoners. And it was one of a number of hospitals in and around London. So the Hospital of St Mary Spittle at Spitalfield as well provided healthcare, a monastic foundation providing healthcare. And monasteries provided healthcare to members of their own community as well. All major monasteries going back to very, very early centuries would have had an infirmary for the care of sick and infirm members of the community. And the basis of that health care for them would have been quiet, seclusion, rest, warmth and nutrition. 
So where in a medieval monastery might we find this typical infirmary which could be treating monks or nuns or indeed members of the community outside? Right, okay. Well, so we're talking about monastic infirmaries and they're typically located to the east of the main claustral buildings, the main buildings of the monastery, you know, the buildings arranged around a cloister. It's, it's a degree of extra separation and it's also more secluded, it's quieter, it's even less accessible to people who aren't members of a monastic community than the main claustral nucleus. And we can get an idea of those locations, just to mention uh, Revo again, there's an infirmary cloister to the sort of southeast of the main claustral complex at Furness Abbey. Uh, you can still see the remains of a monastic infirmary at Roach Abbey. And there's a number of ones where we know where they are at English heritage sites. For instance, St. Augustine's Canterbury, a very, very important monastic infirmary, or Hales Abbey. And they're typically they're located to the east. Is there any evidence of any early surgery taking place at these medieval monasteries? Well, we do have evidence of surgery from the archaeological record of things like the repaired broken bones or people who've had really quite severe wounds repaired. This is from excavation of monastic cemeteries, both for the monks and nuns and for the lay cemeteries at places like St. Mary's Spittal. And also books of surgery as well were in monastic libraries. One we know was in the library of St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury by uh, Roger Frigardi, book on surgery. Um, so there's some positive evidence there about surgical intervention. And, but medieval surgeons did have quite considerable skills. I wouldn't necessarily want it to have gone under their knife, but they were not without the knowledge to effectively intervene, for instance, to repair a compound fracture, to cauterize a wound, to remove a tooth. And Catherine, uh, do you have any sort of anecdotes from the historical record about evidence of early surgery at English medieval monasteries? What you find is monks, certainly by the later Middle Ages, they're not supposed to be performing surgery themselves the church bans clergy, and that includes most monks, from shedding blood, and that includes a ban on performing surgery. But what you do see are monasteries employing surgeons from outside the monastery as and when they need them. So, for example, Westminster Abbey has really, really good infirmary records. Mm. You can see what money they are spending for long periods through the infirmary. They pay surgeons to come in on a case-by-case basis. They pay physicians as well. For example, Record from 1297, they pay a surgeon four shillings, which is quite a lot of money, to operate on a rupture in a monk's abdomen. So they're buying in this expertise when they need it. I gather there were some unusual treatments that the monks engaged in, bloodletting being one of them, which I gather ties in with the idea of the four humours and having to keep each of those humours in balance. Could you tell us a bit more about what this practice was? Four humours, it's a theory about how the body works that goes right back to ancient Greece and is really, really dominant in medicine up till at least the 17th century. And it's this idea that the body contains four substances called humours, blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. And the idea to stay healthy is to try and keep your four humours in balance. Illness is what happens when one of your humours becomes excessively dominant and upsets the balance in your body. Why would anyone think that to allow oneself to bleed would keep oneself in balance? I know it's difficult for us with our modern mindset to think, well, this is crazy, but uh, what was the thinking back in medieval times? Well, bloodletting, obviously, if you have too much 
the blood humor in your body, then bloodletting is a way of bringing that down, of rebalancing your humors. So it's done sometimes to cure illnesses, but it's also done regularly as a preventative thing, as a way of keeping yourself healthy. I mean, it sounds completely bizarre to modern ears, doesn't it, Michael? One of the things associated with Eno's bloodletting is about calming the temptations of the flesh. And that's very important in monasteries. And, you know, temptations of the flesh, I'll let listeners use their imaginations. So much of our medical knowledge has been gained in the last 200 or even 100 years. And that some medical concepts which were accepted as having a sound basis in the Middle Ages and in later centuries, well, they've only recently been overturned. We have to think about so much that we understand about medicine now, germ theory, epidemiological knowledge, invention of effective therapies for bacterial infections and other things. They're relatively modern innovations. And I'm always wary of mocking the knowledge of people in earlier centuries. It would have made perfect sense to them with their worldview. And I have absolutely no doubt at all. I mean, I worked, before becoming an English heritage historian, before doing my doctorate, I worked for health charities for 20 odd years. I saw some infections go from being fatal to being treatable and people having a, a long, healthy lifespan and some nostrums within the treatment of some diseases being turned on their heads. And I have absolutely no doubt that in 100 years' time, physicians and researchers will look back on what we think are very, very effective therapies and things that we should be doing, and we'll be thinking, whatever were they thinking? Yes, I think we can all agree on that, definitely. Also, to pick up on what you were saying about, you know, this may seem crazy to us, but it's facts by humor or theory. It's also something that monks are doing very, very regularly. They know how to do this. This isn't indiscriminately letting people bleed heavily for long periods. The amounts are controlled, the times are controlled. They know how to bind up wounds afterwards. So it's done in a very kind of controlled and practiced way. And also it was something which monks looked forward to. You know, we might find it quite odd, but, you know, bloodletting was followed by an easing of the austerities of the monastic regime, of a stay of the, in the monastic infirmary, I think it was of eight days, where in the infirmary you have a better standard of life. It's warmer, the diet's better, you're excused most of the services that punctuate the monastic day, and you're even allowed some recreation. So it was... Uh, element of life which was although the idea of someone opening a vein and the blood running out of it for a controlled amount of time binding up well it certainly has a, a yuck factor for us was something which was embraced as part of the monastic life also another part of monastic life would have been herbs and plants being grown to eat and to treat people with as remedies what kinds of remedies were proven to alleviate illness and effectively promote good health and stave off the nearness of death well we have from st augustine's canterbury a really beautiful well from english heritage don't i think the british library or the bodleian a wonderful manuscript from st augustine's canterbury you know with depicting herbs and describing some of their medicinal properties 
and um, you know, in the course of uh, my work for English Heritage, working on Battle and uh, more recently at Muchelney, it became very apparent that monks and especially abbots were slaves to their bowels and their digestion and annotated in breviaries. That's a very personal service book containing the text for the eight services that are sung throughout the monastic day. It's annotated on their end pages were treatments for gastric complaints. There's laxatives in them and poultices. And I have absolutely no doubt that being based upon the extracts of various fruits and herbs, they would have been effective remedies for what they were intended to do. So there would definitely have been some medicinal benefit from them. I think there's always this bit of thing of like, you know, herb lore and monks and things like that. You know, the infirmarium, a monastery that's the monk or nun in charge of the care of the sick, would probably have had some knowledge of this. But I think it's, you know, this idea of there being this deeply ingrained herb lore in the Middle Ages, it's perhaps a little bit exaggerated. I don't know what you think about that, Catherine. It's brother Cadfile, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they do, you're right. They have a lot of knowledge of herbal remedies. Some of them are likely to have worked, particularly things like laxatives are going to have worked. But yes, yeah, some of them, are, they're much more hit and miss, aren't they, when you look at some of the others. Where did the knowledge of, of these plants come from? Uh, Quite I, a lot comes from books, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and some of it goes way back to classical antiquity. And then it will all be empirically based. It will be on experience, on hit and miss experience. But then a lot of it as well is like, oh gosh, you know, such and such a plant has a shape therefore it's going to be effective for the treatment of a certain ailment or the aroma of a plant therefore it's going to work it's very much a case of how the present can affect the interpretation of the past that a lot of the emphasis on the importance of herb lore and things like that in the middle ages and slightly later centuries has been informed by modern beliefs in the efficacy of alternative remedies the medieval diets then, um, obviously they're growing some plants and herbs to treat themselves in case uh, any illnesses come up, but they're also growing food for themselves. The diet didn't necessarily help monks though, and I gather in some cases it actually upset their stomachs. Is that right, Michael? The constant evidence of gastric ailments experienced by monks from the earliest days of monasticism onwards it is a preoccupation with them you know it alan bennett got it right in an article in the london review of books he goes to uh, revo abbey and he comments on the monastic latrine the rarer daughter and he said in the end it all comes down to the toilets or something and it re- and he really hit upon a truth there that the monastic diet, the austerities of a monastic diet, which in some extent would appeal to modern concepts of what a healthy diet should be, very, very plant-based, the fats, especially in something like the Cistercian diet, are cut back. But at the same time, it could cause terrible digestive problems. And the general austerities of the monastic life, we've heard about Aylred of Revo, well, by no stretch of the imagination did he have a rich diet, but he still had appalling kidney stones and probably developed gout as well from a description of some of his symptoms. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux would vomit up undigested bloody food because his digestion was so wrecked by his austerities. And then we get into the later centuries and the importance of meat in the monastic diet. 
from the middle of the 14th century onwards, meat becomes very important in the monastic diet. It's eased up by papal decree opportunities for meat eating. And we really do get a sense of, you know, the terrible constipation, which we find monks are suffering from, if these recipes are anything to go by. And I think they are quite uh, reliable. And also the evidence from Westminster on the life expectancy of monks does actually start to go down. And there's a wonderful book on Westminster by Barbara Harvey called Living and Dying in the Middle Ages. She calculates that there's a quite significant drop in life expectancy and attributes a lot of the life years lost to things like congestive heart failure and diabetes because the monk's diet has just become a bit too rich and they've become even more sedentary. That's quite a contrast there, isn't it? You've got... um... Ill health as a result of too much plant-based food. And then you've got the other side of things where they're eating too richly and that also causing ill health. It's there in the archaeological record as well. Now, it isn't universal. It isn't that every single monk and nun is corpulent and got degenerative bone disease and are dropping dead with heart disease. A portion of them are, and its prevalence seems to increase. So there is something in a stereotype that goes back to Chaucer, a lord full of fat, he talks about a monk in one of the Canterbury Tales. There's something in that, I think. And also remember that another aspect of it is that the manual labour, which had been an aspect of the monastic life in earlier centuries, becomes less and less important. And a more general comfort as well, their accommodation becomes better. There are more fires, so they're using fewer calories to keep warm as well. And so there are various contributory factors to it, but it's far from universal. It's not that all monks and nuns were were obese or just sh- endlessly shoveling food down their um, down their throat. You know, monastic plates could well be piled up with thousands of calories, but they didn't mean they ate it all. In actual fact, um, uneaten food from monastic refectories was an important source of nutrition for monastic servants and also for the poor who gathered at the gates of monasteries. You know, the uneaten victuals would be given away to the poor. It's also, it's not just about what they're eating, it's also about what they're drinking. And medieval Mm. people, including monks, drink a lot of ale because it's often not safe to drink the water. And Mm. that ale isn't necessarily very alcoholic, but it's extra calories, it's not good for your liver if you're drinking a lot of it. So what they're drinking as well as what they're eating isn't necessarily all that healthy by modern standards, although perhaps healthier than drinking the water. How did people's understanding of the causes of illness develop during the medieval period? We're talking about a long period of time, obviously, hundreds of years. Well, I guess the theory develops quite a lot. Medical practice, not so much. And there's really, round about the 11th, 12th centuries, there's a revolution in how physicians understand the body. It's triggered off because a lot of medical texts start being translated from Arabic into Latin. Arabic medicine is much more advanced than what's available in Europe in this period. So suddenly they're getting all these books which talk in a huge amount of detail about how the body works, about how illness is caused, about how treatments address particular illnesses. So you start to get this really kind of intellectually sophisticated writing on medicine. It's based on the theory of the humours. So Mm. in in a modern sense, often it looks wrong, but as a sort of intellectual system, it's very consistent, it's very sophisticated, and it's much more sophisticated than anything they had before. So you get this sort of very detailed knowledge of how the body works. 
Wasn't there this uh, physician, John of Gaddesden, who lived between the late 1200s and uh, mid to late uh, 1300s? Was he quite an important figure? Yeah, he's one of the very first English medical writers that we know about, one of the first English-educated medical writers. He studied both medicine and theology at Oxford. And he writes this medical book called The English Rose or The Rose of Medicine that talks about illnesses starting at the head, working down to the feet, and it talks about the signs, the treatment, the causes of lots of different kinds of illnesses. And it becomes quite widely copied afterwards. It's You see sort of bits of it taken out and putting collections of res- remedies. He's also interesting because he talks a little bit about his own practice of medicine. He talks about one of the things I've been looking at in another context. He talks about treating reproductive problems and how difficult it is to treat infertility. He also claims to have cured the King of England's son of smallpox by wrapping him in a red cloth. And this idea that a red cloth can cure smallpox comes up in other medical other medical texts too. But John of Gadsden claims he's actually done it and it has actually worked. And what other medical literature and authors would monks and the general populace might have, what might have they relied on to help people heal? Well, they have, certainly monks, monasteries are centres of learning, remember, all through this period. They have large libraries. They have, as Michael's already mentioned, they do keep a lot of medical books. Some of that is quite theoretical stuff translated from Arabic. They have one of the authors who circulates a lot is a character. Actually, he's a monk called Constantine the African. He comes from North Africa. He becomes a monk in southern Italy. And he translates these Arabic medical books into Latin because he says, I got to Italy and I realized that their medical books were just terrible ones, not even good as introductions. So he translates a lot of medical works. And they circulate all over Europe. They're in England very quickly. You can see them in the library catalogues of monastic houses, talking in quite a sophisticated way about the causes of illness and cures. But they also have much more basic collections of medical recipes, which are more along the lines of, for a headache, do this, for sore eyes, do this. So not everything they have is necessarily very theoretical medicine. They also have quite a lot of practical medicine that they can draw on. For most other people, if you're not a monk or nun, then you're going to be locked out of this knowledge, aren't you? Because I presume most people can't read. Yeah. I mean, some of it may well also have been based on oral transmission. People must have tried herbs, had a sense of what worked and what didn't. But yes, the kind of the learned medical knowledge is going to be restricted to the people who can read and write. And for most of this period, that tends to be the clergy, some mm. educated doctors, almost all men. Now, speaking of authors, Catherine, you are one. Uh, You've written a book called Magic and Religion in Medieval England. So let's move on to magic then. How important was magic to people trying to look after their health? Well, it's one option that you find talked about throughout the period. It's probably worth saying it's never the only option. They have the herbal remedies and so on that we've talked a lot about already. But there is always this option that You can use charms, so you can recite powerful words, you can write down powerful words, you can wear objects like amulets on the body, and this gives you another option for curing illnesses. And you find this stuff written about in medical books as well as in other sources, so it's not deemed to be something completely separate from medicine. John of Gadsden, who we've talked about, he includes quite a lot of charms, particularly for certain conditions like epilepsy tends to attract charms, bleeding tends to attract charms. Sometimes these are conditions that actually medieval medicine can't cure by other means. So magic and medicine 
become interwoven? Did the church pour scorn on people who believed in magic for cures? Or did they just accept accept the idea? A bit of both, really. There's always one strand in medieval church writing on magic which says, how are you stupid enough to believe this stuff? Why on earth do you believe that putting something on your body is going to change your body? So there's always this idea that this is all just silly superstition. Mm. But... Some medieval clergy are much more worried about it than that. They worry that if you've got a remedy, you don't really know how it works, then you must be trafficking with demons in some way, even if you don't realise that that's what you're doing. So some of some clergy, particularly the stricter ones, take it very, very seriously. Others are much more open to accepting that if people are using a charm out of simple faith, then that's not necessarily brilliant, but it's probably okay. It's a difficult idea, isn't it? Because faith can mean different things, can't it? You can believe in ideas or you can believe in God or or whatever. Uh, yeah. What's your view on this, Michael? Well, you do find, you know, it was, uh, you know, to return to Muchelny, annotated on the end pages of the breviary that I was mentioning, there is a treatise on the plague, John of Burgundy, I think it is. But it's immediately followed by a set of prayers to St. Modwina, that yes, there's this, you know, the medical knowledge has to be accompanied by faith as well, prayers for your safe deliverance, but they're pious prayers. You're asking mm. God, you're asking the saint to intercede you, intercede with you for with Christ and in heaven that to secure your cure. And we talked to you know monastic infirmaries that their design of them speaks to this healing the body through care, but also making sure that the spirit is healed and taken care of as well. Because at the end of each monastic infirmary is a chapel and great care is made. So it's positioned so that the inmates of a hospital can hear the liturgy being celebrated for the spiritual welfare of their souls. It's really interesting, that idea of prayer and faith as well. Because in this idea about treating cures through magic, it's almost like it becomes more legitimised if you involve God and Christ and the saints and you use your faith through prayer to bring about improvements in health that way. It almost seems more legitimate that way than it would through alternative means. Yeah, and I think you know they would never have seen that kind of thing as magic, many of them. If you're asking God, if you're asking the saints to help you heal, then that's as you say, completely legitimate. And Mm. even a lot of the, some of the kind of more borderline magical cures, a lot of the charms, for example, will appeal to the saints, will appeal to God. And that's why at least some clergy are prepared to accept them. One of Chaucer's characters is the parson who offers this kind of sermon about good and bad behaviour. And one of the things he says right at the end is that charms don't really work, but because simple people use them out of simple faith, God allows it. (laughs) <laughs> a much more tolerant idea yes. than you might find in some other writers. You know, one of the characteristics of a medieval saint, and we can use Aylred of Revo as an example, is his ability to perform miraculous cures. And of course, he's, he's God's agent in the performance of these. And you know, there are several miraculous cures attributed to him. A monk dying of congestive heart failure, for instance, is saved through Aylward's intervention. His crozier, crozier, his pastoral staff, is mm. used to heal a terribly, hideously deformed, broken arm of a lay brother. And also, you know, some of them, it's sort of, well, the miracle is actually basic medical knowledge that he's confronted by a young man who's swallowed a tadpole 
which has grown in his this guy's stomach and he's transformed him into this hideous shape. I think he resembles a frog, you know. <laughs> it's almost like demonic. And frogs are associated with evil. And basically, Aylward sticks his fingers down this chap's throat to induce vomiting. And, you know, this hideous matter is brought forth. So, you know, it's a bit of basic medical knowledge, but also a miraculous cure as well. So this idea about that Catherine's touched on earlier about charms and amulets, um, these were a feature of belief systems during the Roman occupation of Britain. So they were fairly established, weren't they? These traditions presumably continue in the Middle Ages quite strongly. Yeah. I mean, you haven't got many physical amulets surviving, although I think we might have a chance to talk about one later. But because a lot of them are made of organic matter, they're made of plants, they're made of paper, they don't survive. But they're very much talked about by clergy, often talking about the fact that people shouldn't use them. Mm. You find doctors like John Gadsden giving instructions for using them sometimes. And you find them being used right through 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. When you get 19th century folklorists going around collecting sort of traditional lore and traditional remedies, you still find information about charms and amulets. So it's not something that goes away after the Middle Ages. It's something that's very, very established. And I suppose in a situation where medicine can't do a lot for you, people will give it a go, won't they? Yeah, yeah. and I think this brings up for me, you know, the role of monasteries as custodians of relics and people making pilgrimages in the search for a miraculous cure, making an offering to the shrine afterwards for whichever ailment has been cured. I mean, we have a Revo Abbey. Uh, was excavated close to the shrine of St. William, the first abbot of Riva. There's a little votive shoe now. Was that made in anticipation of a cure or in thanks of a cure attributed to William? Who knows? And you know, to this day, people will make pilgrimages to shrines. Lourdes in uh, the south of France is a classic example, in the hope that they will be miraculously cured of an ailment. Were charms verbal as well as physical objects? Yes, there are charms that you can recite over a person. One of the ones that John Gadsden talks about and a lot of other medical writers talk about are you recite the names of the three kings into someone's ear to help cure epilepsy. Right. So yeah, there are lots of charms that you can speak or that you can write down and sort of put on a person as well. But also they, they were physical. They might have been um, precious. And I think the Middleham jewel is a good example of how precious objects could embody religious beliefs. This is a 15th century amulet that was discovered in 1985 by a metal detectorist near Middleham Castle in North Yorkshire. Can you describe what the object looks like, Catherine? Because, I mean, I've seen a picture, so if anyone's you know, listening to their podcast right now and wants to open up a tab on their phone or tablet or computer, they can look at it themselves. But uh, for people who who can't see, how would you describe the Middleham Jewel? It's a really attractive thing. It's made of gold. It's diamond shaped, about six centimetres long. It's a little box with a sort of hollow compartment inside. On the front, it's got a fairly large sapphire and it's got religious images on the front and the back. So it's got a picture of the nativity and a picture of the trinity of God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then it's got religious inscriptions around the edges as well. So it's a very intricate, very attractive, high status thing made of gold. And what does it say about the belief systems at the time? Because obviously when I was preparing for this podcast, I thought um, we've done this episode about charms and amulets and Roman beliefs and superstitions for a Roman episode. And yet here we are 
a 15th century amulet. That surprised me in a way. Yeah. And again, it's one of these things where you doubt whether anyone who owned it at the time would have necessarily thought that there was anything dubious or magical about it. You know, it's clearly somebody has spent very serious money getting this thing made and probably wearing it where it can be seen. But it tells us quite a lot because on the one hand, it's drawing on religious imagery, it's invoking or reminding its viewers of the Trinity, of God. It's also got the sapphire, which might well have had its own properties. There's a well-established belief in the Middle Ages that precious stones have particular properties that can help you. And one of the things the sapphire can do is to ward off evil influences, for example. But then it's also got these inscriptions, which include biblical quotes, but they also include nonsense or magical words like ananizapta, words which are often seen Mm. as kind of magical words, certainly powerful or unknown words. So there's a whole range of different kinds of beliefs going on here, from the properties of precious stones to thinking about God and the Trinity to using powerful words. There are a lot of... Yeah, there's a convergence of historical influences. It it ties in with the invoking of saints and Christ for protection. You know, and you do get these things, you know, this idea of saying certain magical words or certain sacred words will provide protection. Um, we talked about the Byland Abbey ghost stories in the previous podcast. And in several of the stories, people protect themselves by saying certain words. And in one of them, I think it's the second story, someone protects themselves from the haunting by having uh, strips of vellum with certain phrases written upon them. You know, the middle of jewel is extraordinary. You know, it's a very, very precious thing. But people would have been wearing pendants and amulets of made of less precious thing, silver, silver gilt, perhaps with a relic of a saint inside or something which they've touched, even just a pilgrim badge or an ampule full of water from a shrine, wear that or carry that in the hope of having some kind of spiritual protection against illness and harm. And we still have these beliefs today, don't we? Even in our modern times, that we might have a lucky pen or something like that that we carry around with us or... Trying to think of other, other lucky objects that you might have. Um, well, we try to avoid going under ladders and all these kinds yeah. of superstitions for good and bad luck. Definitely. Yeah. People have rituals they'll go through in the belief that it will somehow protect them. And, you know, and how many of us will carry something or have something close to us or something we see constantly to remind us of a significant event or a significant person? And, you know, I think there's a thread of continuity there with medieval belief in the efficacy of relics. Mm. And maybe just it's part of the human condition as well, that we like to have something for comfort uh, to hold on to. And if it's if it's there physically, then that can perhaps give us strength and mental strength as well. So it strikes me then that with all these technical and scientific advances of our day, modern culture still has a place for superstition, belief in natural therapies, prayer, meditation, alongside the more empirical-based science that we have of pharmaceuticals and surgical interventions. So in some ways, I suppose we're not that different from our medieval ancestors, are we? Our emotional and, in the broadest sense of the word, spiritual needs haven't changed one bit. We're still the same as we were in the Middle Ages and in earlier centuries as well. As human beings, we haven't evolved beyond the basic needs for some kind of 
emotional and spiritual comfort and the uncertainty which we face with disease, the fear that that can engender, our thoughts about the hereafter, although we can postpone them for an awful lot, someday all of us are going to be confronted with thoughts about our mortality. I think you're absolutely right, Michael. I guess one thing that may have changed sort of the priorities, the lit, what people do first these mm. days in the event of ill health, we tend to think that the doctor is the first port of call, that we'll seek medical advice in a way that perhaps wasn't always the first priority in the past. Yeah. In the past, medical care, perhaps less effective, perhaps less available. So you might be equally likely to try prayer first or a charm or something that your friend or neighbor or relative had suggested. So I think maybe we probably put a lot more faith in medicine than they did in many ways. Mm. But so much of these achievements have only been in relatively modern times. Until the 1950s, the standard treatment for tuberculosis was going to stay in a sanatorium. And the basis of treatment there was fresh air, rest, diet and warmth. And that is exactly the basis of the kind of cure or care that was provided to people in monastic infirmaries. You know, it's within living memory that treatment of some conditions has only really evolved from what would have been available in earlier centuries. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be getting to know the Romans of Britain. Well, it's really important to consider the army when we're considering who the Romans are in Roman Britain, because the army is really the face of Rome. They're going to be quite a heavy presence in the province over the subsequent decades and centuries. Thanks for listening. See you next time.